Section twenty one of Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Noel Badrian. Hans Christian Andersen Fairy Tales and Short Stories, Volume One, eighteen thirty five to eighteen forty two by Hans Christian Andersen, translated by H. P. Paul. What the Moon Saw, Part Two. Eleventh Evening I will give you a picture of Pompeii, said the moon. I was in the suburb, in the street of tombs, as they call it, where the fair monuments stand in the spot where ages ago the merry youths, their temples bound with rosy wreaths, danced with their fair sisters of lace. Now the stillness of death reigned around. German mercenaries in the Neapolitan service kept guard, played cards and diced, and a troop of strangers from beyond the mountains came into the town, accompanied by a sentry. They wanted to see the city that had risen from the grave illuminated by my beams and I showed them the wheel-ruts in the streets paved with broad lava slabs. I showed them the names on the doors and the signs that hung there yet. They saw in the little courtyard the basins of the fountains ornamented with shells, but no jets of water gushed upward, no song sounded forth from the richly painted chambers where the bronze dog kept the door. It was the city of the dead, only Vesuvius thundered forth his everlasting hymn, each separate verse of which is called by men an eruption. We went to the temple of Venus, built of snow-white marble, with its high altar in front of the broad steps, and the weeping willows sprouting freshly forth among the pillars. The air was transparent and blue, and black Vesuvius formed the background, with fire ever shooting forth from it, like the stem of a pine tree. Above it stretched the smoky cloud in the silence of the night, like the crown of the pine, but in a blood-red illumination. Among the company was a lady singer, a real and great singer. I have witnessed the homage paid to her in the greatest cities of Europe. When they came to the tragic theatre, they all sat down on the amphitheatre steps, and thus a small part of the house was occupied by an audience, as it had been many centuries ago. The stage still stood unchanged with its walled side scenes and the two arches in the background through which the beholders saw the same scene that had been exhibited in the olden times, a scene painted by nature herself, namely, the mountains between Sorrento and Amalfi. The singer gaily mounted the ancient stage and sang. The place inspired her, and she reminded me of a wild Arab horse that rushes headlong on with snorting nostrils and flying mane. Her song was so light and yet so firm. Anon I thought of the mourning mother beneath the cross at Golgotha. So deep was the expression of pain and just as it had done thousands of years ago, the sound of applause and delight now filled the theatre. Happy gifted creature, all the hearers exclaimed. 
Five minutes more, and the stage was empty. The company had vanished, and not a sound more was heard. All were gone. But the ruins stood unchanged, as they will stand when centuries shall have gone by, and when none shall know of the momentary applause, and of the triumph of the fair songstress, when all will be forgotten and gone, and even for me this hour will be but a dream of the past. Twelfth Evening I looked through the window of an editor's house, said the moon. It was somewhere in Germany. I saw handsome furniture, many books, and a chaos of newspapers. Several young men were present. The editor himself stood at his desk, and two little books, both by young authors, were to be noticed. This one has been sent to me, said he. I have not read it yet. What think you of the contents? Oh, said the person addressed. He was a poet himself. It is good enough. A little broad, certainly, but you see, the author is still young. The verses might be better, to be sure. The thoughts are sound, though there is certainly a good deal of commonplace among them. But what will you have? You can't be always getting something new. That he'll turn out anything great, I don't believe. But you may safely praise him. He is well read, a remarkable oriental scholar, and has good judgment. It was he who wrote that nice review of my Reflections on Domestic Life. We must be lenient towards the young man. But he is a complete hack, objected another of the gentlemen. Nothing worse in poetry than mediocrity, and he certainly does not go beyond this. Poor fellow, observed a third, and his aunt is so happy about him. It was she, Mr. Editor, who got together so many subscribers for your last translation. Ah, the good woman! Well, I have noticed the book briefly. Undoubted talent, a welcome offering, a flower in the garden of poetry, prettily brought out, and so on. But this other book, I suppose the author expects me to purchase it. I heard it is praised. He has genius, certainly, don't you think so? Yes, all the world declares as much, replied the poet, but it has turned out rather wildly. The punctuation of the book, in particular, is very eccentric. It'll be good for him if we pull him to pieces and anger him a little, otherwise he will get too good an opinion of himself. But that would be unfair, objected the fourth. Let us not carp at little faults, but rejoice over the real and abundant good that we find here. He surpasses all the rest. Not so. If he is a true genius, he can bear the sharp voice of censure. There are people enough to praise him. Don't let us quite turn his head. Decided talent, wrote the editor, with the usual carelessness. That he can write incorrect verses may be seen in page 25, where there are two false quantities. We recommend him to study the ancients, etc. I went away, continued the moon, and looked through the windows in the aunt's house. There sat the bepraised poet, the tame one. All the guests paid homage to him, and he was happy. I sought the other poet out, the wild one. Him also I found in a great assembly at his patron's, where the tame poet's book was being discussed. I shall read yours also, said Makenos. But to speak honestly, you know, I never hide my opinions from you. 
I don't expect much from it, for you are much too wild, too fantastic. But it must be allowed that, as a man, you are highly respectable. A young girl sat in a corner, and she read in a book these words. In the dust lies genius and glory, but every day talent will pay. It's only the old, old story, but the piece is repeated every day. Thirteenth Evening The moon said, Beside the woodland path there are two small farmhouses. The doors are low, and some of the windows are placed quite high, and others close to the ground, and whitethorn and barberry bushes grow around them. The roof of each house is overgrown with moss and with yellow flowers and house-leek. Cabbage and potatoes are the only plants cultivated in the gardens, but out of the hedge there grows a willow-tree, and under the willow-tree sat a little girl, and she sat with her eyes fixed upon the old oak-tree between the two huts. It was an old, withered stem. It had been sawn off at the top, and the stork had built his nest upon it and he stood in his nest, clapping with his beak. A little boy came and stood by the girl's side. They were brother and sister. "'What are you looking at?' he asked. "'I'm watching the stork,' she replied. "'Our neighbours told me that he would bring us a little brother or sister to-day. Let us watch to see it come.' "'The stork brings no such thing,' the boy declared. "'You may be sure of that.' Our neighbour told me the same thing, but she laughed when she said it, and so I asked her if she could say, On my honour, and she could not, and I know by that the story about the stork is not true, and that they only tell it to us children for fun. But where do babies come from then? asked the girl. Why, an angel from heaven brings them under his cloak, and no man can see him, and that's why we never know when he brings them. At that moment there was a rustling in the branches of the willow-tree, and the children folded their hands and looked at one another. It was certainly the angel coming with the baby. They took each other's hand, and at that moment the door of one of the houses opened, and the neighbour appeared. "'Come in, you two, she said. See what the stork has brought. It is a little brother.' And the children nodded gravely at one another, for they had felt quite sure already that the baby was come. Fourteenth evening. I was gliding over the Loonberg heath, the moon said. A lonely hut stood by the wayside, a few scanty bushes grew near it, and a nightingale, who had lost his way, sang sweetly. He died in the coldness of the night. It was his farewell song that I heard. The morning dawn came glimmering red, I saw a caravan of emigrant peasant families who were bound to Hamburg, there to take ship for America, where fancied prosperity would bloom for them. The mothers carried their little children at their backs, the elder ones tottered by their sides, and a poor starved horse tugged at a cart that bore their scanty effects. The cold wind whistled, and therefore the little girl nestled closer to the mother who, looking up at my decreasing disc, thought of the bitter want at home, and spoke of the heavy taxes they had not been able to raise. The whole caravan thought of the same thing. Therefore, the rising dawn seemed to them a message from the sun of fortune that was to gleam brightly upon them. They heard the dying nightingale sing. It was no false prophet, but a harbinger of fortune. 
the wind whistled therefore they did not understand that the nightingale sung fare away over the sea thou hast paid the long passage with all that was thine and poor and helpless shalt thou enter canaan thou must sell thyself thy wife and thy children but your griefs shall not last long behind the broad fragrant leaves lurks the goddess of death and her welcome kiss shall breathe fever into thy blood fare away fare away over the heaving billows and the caravan listened well pleased to the song of the nightingale which seemed to promise good fortune day broke through the light clouds country people went across the heath to church the black-gowned women with their white head-dresses looked like ghosts that had stepped forth from the church pictures all around lay a wide dead plain covered with faded brown heath and black charred spaces between the white sand hills the woman carried hymn-books and walked into the church oh pray pray for those who are wandering to find graves beyond the foaming billows fifteenth evening i know a pulcinella the moon told me the public applaud vociferously directly they see him every one of his movements is comic and is sure to throw the house into convulsions of laughter and yet there is no art in it at all it is completely nature when he was yet a little boy playing about with other boys he was already punch nature had intended him for it and had provided him with a hump on his back and another on his breast but his inward man his mind on the contrary was richly furnished no one could surpass him in depth of feeling or in readiness of intellect the theatre was his ideal world if he had possessed a slender well-shaped figure he might have been the first tragedian on any stage the heroic the great filled his soul and yet he had become a pulcinella his very sorrow and melancholy did but increase the comic dryness of his sharply cut features and increased the laughter of the audience who showered plaudits on their favourite the lovely columbine was indeed kind and cordial to him but she preferred to marry the harlequin it would have been too ridiculous if beauty and ugliness had in reality paired together when pulcinella was in very bad spirits she was the one who could force a hearty burst of laughter or even a smile from him first she would be melancholy with him then quieter and at last quite cheerful and happy i know very well what is the matter with you she said yes you're in love and he could not help laughing i and love he cried that would have an absurd look how the public would shout certainly you're in love she continued and added with a comic pathos and i am the person you are in love with you see such a thing may be said when it is quite out of the question and indeed pulcinella burst out laughing and gave a leap into the air and his melancholy was forgotten and yet she had only spoken the truth he did love her love her adoringly as he loved what was great and lofty in art at her wedding he was the merriest among the guests but in the stillness of night he wept if the public had seen his distorted face then they would have applauded rapturously 
and a few days ago Columbine died. On the day of the funeral, Harlequin was not required to show himself on the boards, for he was a disconsolate widower. The director had to give a very merry piece, that the public might not too painfully miss the pretty Columbine and the agile Harlequin. Therefore, Pulcinella had to be more boisterous and extravagant than ever, and he danced and capered with despair in his heart, and the audience yelled and shouted, Bravo! Bravissimo! Pulcinella was actually called before the curtain. He was pronounced inimitable. But last night the hideous little fellow went out of the town quite alone to the deserted churchyard. The wreath of flowers on Columbine's grave was already faded, and he sat down there. It was a study for a painter. As he sat with his chin on his hands, his eyes turned up towards me. He looked like a grotesque monument, a punch on a grave, peculiar and whimsical. If the people could have seen their favourite, they would have cried as usual, Bravo, Pulcinella, bravo, bravissimo! Sixteenth evening. Hear what the moon told me. I have seen the cadet who has just been made an officer put on his handsome uniform for the first time. I have seen the young bride in her wedding dress, and the princess girl wife happy in her gorgeous robes. But never have I seen a felicity equal to that of a little girl of four years old whom I watched this evening. She had received a new blue dress and a new pink hat. The splendid attire had just been put on, and all were calling for a candle, for my rays shining in through the window of the room were not bright enough for the occasion and further illumination was required. There stood the little maid, stiff and upright as a doll, her arms stretched painfully straight out away from the dress, and her fingers apart, and oh, what happiness beamed from her eyes, and from her whole countenance. Tomorrow you shall go out in your new clothes, said her mother, and the little one looked up at her hat and down at her frock, and smiled brightly. Mother, she cried, what will the little dogs think when they see me in these splendid new things? Seventeenth Evening I have spoken to you of Pompeii, said the moon, that corpse of a city exposed in the view of living towns. I know another sight still more strange, and this is not the corpse, but the spectre of a city. Whenever the jetty fountains splash into the marble basins, they seem to me to be telling the story of the floating city. Yes, the spouting water may tell of her. The waves of the sea may sing of her fame. On the surface of the ocean a mist often rests, and that is her widow's veil. The bridegroom of the sea is dead. His palace and his city are his mausoleum. Dost thou know this city? She has never heard the rolling of wheels or the hoof-treads of horses in her streets, through which the fish swim, while the black gondola glides spectrally over the green water. I will show you the place, continued the moon, the largest square in it, and you will fancy yourself transported into the city of a fairy tale. The grass grows rank among the broad flagstones, and in the morning twilight thousands of tame pigeons flutter around the solitary lofty tower. 
On three sides you find yourself surrounded by cloistered walks. In these the silent Turk sits smoking his long pipe. The handsome Greek leans against the pillar and gazes at the upraised trophies and lofty masts, memorials of power that is gone. The flags hang down like mourning scarves. A girl rests there. She has put down her heavy pails filled with water. The yoke with which she has carried them rests on one of her shoulders, and she leans against the masts of victory. That is not a fairy palace you see before you yonder, but a church. The gilded domes and shining orbs flash back my beams. The glorious bronze horses up yonder have made journeys like the bronze horse in the fairy tale. They have come hither and gone hence, and have returned again. Do you notice the variegated splendour of the walls and windows? It looks as if genius has followed the caprices of a child in the adornment of these singular temples. Do you see the winged lion on the pillar? The gold glitters still, but his wings are tied. The lion is dead, for the king of the sea is dead. The great hall stands desolate, and where gorgeous paintings hung of yore, the naked wall now peers through. The Lazzarone sleeps under the arcade, whose pavement in olden times was to be trodden on only by the feet of high nobility. From the deep wells, and perhaps from the prisons by the Bridge of Sighs, rise the accents of woe, as at the time when the tambourine was heard in the gay gondolas, and the golden ring was cast from Bucentaur to Adria, the Queen of the Seas. Adria, shroud thyselves in mist, let the veil of thy widowhood shroud thy form, and clothe in the weeds of woe the mausoleum of thy bridegroom, the marble spectral Venice. Eighteenth Evening I looked down upon a great theatre, said the moon. The house was crowded, for a new actor was to make his first appearance that night. My rays glided over a little window in the wall and I saw a painted face with the forehead pressed against the panes. It was the hero of the evening. The knightly beard curled crisply about the chin, but there were tears in the man's eyes, for he had been hissed off, and indeed with reason. The poor incapable. But incapables cannot be admitted into the empire of art. He had deep feelings and loved his art enthusiastically, but the art loved him not. The prompter's bell sounded. The hero enters with a determined air, so ran the stage directions in his part, and he had to appear before an audience who turned him into ridicule. When the piece was over, I saw a form wrapped in a mantle creeping down the steps. It was the vanquished knight of the evening. The scene-shifters whispered to one another, and I followed the poor fellow home to his room. To hang oneself is to die a mean death, and poison is not always at hand, I know, but he thought of both. I saw how he looked at his pale face in the glass, with eyes half-closed, to see if he could look well as a corpse. A man may be very unhappy, and yet exceedingly affected. He thought of death, of suicide. I believe he pitied himself, for he wept bitterly, and when a man has had his cry out, he doesn't kill himself. Since that time a year had rolled by. Again a play was to be acted, but in a little theatre, 
and by a poor strolling company. Again I saw the well-remembered face with the painted cheeks and the crisp beard. He looked up at me and smiled, and yet he had been hissed off only a minute before, hissed off from a wretched theatre by a miserable audience, and to-night a shabby hearse rolled out of the town gate. It was a suicide, our painted, despised hero. The driver of the hearse was the only person present, for no one followed except my beams. In a corner of the churchyard the corpse of the suicide was shoveled into the earth, and nettles will soon be growing rank over his grave, and the sexton will throw thorns and weeds from the other graves upon it. Nineteenth Evening I come from Rome, said the moon. In the midst of the city, upon one of the seven hills, lie the ruins of the imperial palace. The wild fig tree grows in the clefts of the wall, and covers the nakedness thereof with its broad grey-green leaves. Trampling among the heaps of rubbish, the ass treads upon green laurels, and rejoices over the rank thistles. From this spot, whence the eagles of Rome once flew abroad, whence they came, saw, and conquered, our door leads into a little mean house, built of clay between two pillars. The wild vine hangs like a morning garland over the crooked window. An old woman and her little granddaughter live there. They rule now in the palace of the Caesars, and show two strangers the remains of its past glories. Of the splendid throne hall only a naked wall yet stands, and a black cypress throws its dark shadow on the spot where the throne once stood. The dust lies several feet deep on the broken pavement, and the little maiden, now the daughter of the imperial palace, often sits there on her stool when the evening bells ring. The keyhole of the door close by she calls her turret window. Through this she can see half Rome, as far as the mighty cupola of St. Peter's. On this evening, as usual, stillness reigned around, and in the full beams of my light came the little granddaughter. On her head she carried an earthen picture of antique shape filled with water. Her feet were bare, her short frock and her white sleeves were torn. I kissed her pretty round shoulders, her dark eyes and black shining hair. She mounted the stairs. They were steep, having been made up of rough blocks of broken marble and the capital of a fallen pillar. The coloured lizard slipped away, startled from before her feet, but she was not frightened at them. Already she lifted her hand to pull the doorbell. A hare's foot fastened to a string formed the bell-handle of the imperial palace. She paused for a moment. Of what might she be thinking? Perhaps of the beautiful Christ-child dressed in gold and silver, which was down below in the chapel, where the silver candlesticks gleamed so bright and where her little friends sung the hymns in which she also could join. I know not. Presently she moved again. She stumbled. The earthen vessel fell from her head and broke on the marble steps. She burst into tears. The beautiful daughter of the imperial palace wept over the worthless broken picture. With her bare feet she stood there weeping and dared not pull the string, the bell-rope of the imperial palace end of what the moon saw part 2